before I start the message today, I just want to say a couple of things. Um, my, my motto in life, my mission is to speak the truth in love. And we see that on the sign out, the speak the truth, speaking the truth in love. And the fact that we can speak the truth without love, but we cannot truly love without speaking the truth. We're at a crossroads as a country right now. And God has called us as a church to be courageous and not avoid issues. We'd like to avoid issues. We, uh, we, we don't like to have our comfort disrupted. But let me tell you something. We are in a nation now that has incredible problems, incredible challenges. And the answer is not political. The answer is spiritual. And God raised up this week in a miracle, it's an absolute miracle, a man of God who's been on the forefront of many battles, including what we're talking about today, Mike Johnson, who's now the Speaker of the House. The first thing he did when he was elected Speaker was gather people around and they knelt and they prayed to Almighty God. They recognize that God is the answer. And he was castigated and made fun of and attacked in every way you can imagine. He doesn't care. Because he's a courageous man of God who's standing up for principle. And, and you know, it was a miracle because he wasn't even on the radar. It was all these other guys and whatever. And there's so much corruption. We needed a man or a woman of integrity who would stand up and say, this is truth unapologetically and declare the truth and move forward. Pray for him. Pray for our leadership because we desperately need leadership. Now, um, and as we talk about this today, um, there, there are times that we want to hear feel-good sermons and God has done this for us and God cares about us and, and he does that, he does all the time. But there are times we need to be, we need to be, have, have a backbone and be strong in our, in our world. Sometimes the sermons are not fun to, to listen to because we are to be warriors, warriors, not wimps. God has called us to be warriors. There are a lot of pulpits in America that will not talk about difficult issues. This is not one of them. This is a place we have to do that. And you have risen to the challenge, and I, I appreciate that, and I want to just say thank you and 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 what you have stuck with and continue to pray for and fight for. Because the church, believe it or not, with all its foibles and all its faults, it's not perfect. The church is what God put on earth to change. The church is the one, is the answer to the issues of our society. When we fail to be the church, then our culture and society goes right down the tubes. And so rise up and be the church. She wanted to say that before I start today. I don't have any notes on that, but... Okay, let's give God a coffee. The abortion dilemma. Abortion is one of the most divisive issues in America today. Not since the Civil War fought between the North and the South 
over the issue of state sovereignty to decide the issue of slavery has one single issue so divided this country. Now, you add to that the transgender issue and now anti-Israel issues and uh, all of those kinds of things that are tearing the fabric of our country apart. We need to not put our heads in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. We need to say, let's see what God says about these issues. Is abortion a women's issue? Is abortion the issue of a woman's right to choose? And what is she choosing? Is it an issue of government regulation? Is it an issue of elections? Is it an issue of right to privacy? Or deciding by referendums? Or is it an issue of the right of the unborn to live? Abortions are not new, nor just a contemporary issue. They've been performed throughout the history of mankind. The difference is that today in many states, though not all, many states abortion is legal, performed by a licensed physician, and anyone who wants one can have it. It's called abortion on demand, and it was protected ostensibly by the First Amendment right of privacy. In January 1973, many of you remember this decision. The U.S. Supreme Court heard the manufactured case, and it was manufactured, Roe v. Wade. Jane Roe was pregnant and took Henry Wade, the Dallas district attorney, to court to fight the anti-abortion law in the state of Texas. When, when the case reached the Supreme Court, the justices voted 7-2 to two that the anti-abortion law in Texas was unconstitutional. We lived through that. We remember it. About this decision, John Stott writes, its judgment inhibited all regulation of abortion during the first three months of pregnancy and during the second and third trimesters regulated it only in relation to the mother's physical or mental health. This ruling implicitly permitted abortion on demand at every stage of pregnancy. Now today, the Supreme Court made the change, decided the right to an abortion was not found in the U.S. Constitution, and they overturned Roe versus Wade. The issue was then passed back to individual states, so the battle is now in the states. It's not over. The battle is not, we won a huge victory when they decided it, it wasn't a constitutional right. But now we find it, it's emphasized, it's free, and we're surrounded by Minnesota and Illinois, huge states that promote abortion. This has not gone away. We won one of the major first battles, but it's still a major battle. Pro-abortionists emphasize the rights of the mother. Pro-lifers em emphasize the rights of the unborn child, his or her right to live. We're in a study of the Ten Commandments, God's top ten. And we begin, again, we began the Sixth Commandment last week and continue today with the second of very relevant contemporary issues at stake. And I do this because we need to understand why we believe what we believe. We need to understand. Today we're going to look at three fundamental questions raised by the abortion dilemma. Number one, who decides questions of life and death? Who decides? What is our foundation for truth? Number two, is the unborn child a human being? Is the unborn child a human being? 
Or when does life begin? That's the question. Number three, is the taking of that child's life ever justified? And we're going to examine some of the contemporary answers to those questions, but we're going to look at the Bible's answer to each question. Common sense in modern science tells us that the unborn child is a human being. But our authority is not common sense. It's not modern science. Our foundation is the Bible, the living word of God. Our statement of faith says we believe the Bible is the infallible word of God inerrant in the original writings and is our standard for faith and practice. We need to know what does the Bible say about these issues. Not this opinion or that opinion. It's what does the Bible say. So we're going to look at the sixth commandment again with this issue in mind. Exodus 20, verse 6 says, You shall not commit, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Who is to decide questions of life and death? Let's look at Roman numeral one. Who decides questions of life and death? John Stott, in his book Involvement, Social and Sexual Relationships in the Modern World, writes, What is involved in abortion issue is nothing less than our Christian doctrines of both God and man, or more precisely, the sovereignty of God and the sanctity of human life. Acts Acts 17, 25, and 28 says, He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else, for in him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1.16, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Psalm 104.29 says, When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Job 1.21 says, The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the Lord, name of the Lord be praised. To the Christian, both life-giving and life-taking belong to God alone. Amen. It's God's prerogative. It's not my choice. It's not your choice. It's not man's choice. It's not woman's choice. It's God's choice. Mother Teresa expressed it this way. Only God can decide life and death. That is why abortion is such a terrible sin. You are not only killing life, but putting self before God. People want to decide who is to live and who is to die. John Stott says the question of abortion concerns our doctrine of man as well as of God. What do we do? John Stott says, if both the divine sovereignty and human dignity are being challenged by the abortion debate, no conscientious Christian can stand aside from it. They're challenging God's sovereignty and our ability to stand up. Abortion attacks the doctrine of man, which is human dignity, that we are made in the image of God. We looked at that last Sunday. And the doctrine of God, that God is in control And God is sovereign. It's God. So who decides questions of life and death? God does. It's God's prerogative. The second question that we look at in the word of God, is the unborn child a human being? Is the unborn child a human being? Or when does human life begin? This controversy has raged on for a long time. When does human life begin? There are common views, and we'll look at some of the common views 
and see why they have problems. First one is that life begins at birth. That's what we always say, you know, life begins at birth. They take Genesis 2-7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the contention on this was that until man takes a breath, he isn't a living being, isn't a living soul. Remember, this passage was at the creation of Adam. Adam. Um, Adam is the only human being that ever lived that didn't start as a baby. Okay? He started as a full-grown human. It's a one-time occurrence. Adam was never a fetus, a baby, even a child. He began life as an adult. It doesn't say the same even about Eve. Birth is a dramatic change of environment, not a fundamental change in the baby. Stott writes, pictures of the child just before birth reveal there's no fundamental difference between the unborn and the newly born. Both are dependent on their mother, although in a different way. Some liberal people, politicians, still present this as truth, but most reject this as nonsense. It's not, a, it's not a viable life until it breathes. That's nonsense. Life begins at birth. That's one common view. Not so much common anymore. The second view is viability. Viability. Which means the ability of the baby to survive outside the mother's womb. So if born prematurely, the baby would be able to survive. Has to be able to survive. The, the problem is it's an artificial distinction. Can a baby once born feed itself? Can it clothe itself? Can it defend itself? No. Babies will live if they're given proper physical and medical care. From conception, the baby is a separate entity entirely from his or her mother. And they receive care for a long time after birth. The care received after birth is just a different care. The baby is the same unique individual. Viability is too subjective a measurement. Viability was once thought to be six months and five months, and some premature babies survived in less than five months. And with advances in neonatal care, medicine has changed, quote unquote, the point at which a baby becomes a human being? No, I don't think so. Third view is quickening. Quickening. This view states that the life begins when the mother can feel the baby move inside of her. The problem. This isn't the point at the beginning of movement. It's only the mother's perception of movement. What about the heartbeat? Is that movement? At, at three to three and a half weeks, three to three and a half weeks, the tiny heart begins to beat. And this is before most women even know they're pregnant, let alone feel movement. Fourth opinion, life begins at implantation. Implantation is when the fertilized eggs called zygotes implant in the uterine wall. Shirley Barron, a physician, wrote an article in Christianity Today, and she was addressing the different methods of birth control. She was talking about the prevention of the fertilization of the egg and the prevention of the implantation of the fertilized egg, which is a morning after pill. So in other words, the egg has been implanted, it's fertilized, but it keeps it from planting in the uterus. According to Shirley Barron, 
She says about 50% of all fertilized eggs or zygotes are abnormal. Most of these survive a few days and disappear. Some zygotes have a unique genotype, complete set of genes, but do not develop into an embryo. It is uncertain as to why. She writes, twinning occurs between the 10th and 14th day after fertilization. At about day 20, cells begin to carry oxygen, and at the 23 to 25 days, primitive blood cells develop. Still, she writes, it is unlikely a woman would know at this point she's even pregnant. She suggested that maybe it's when blood cells develop that life begins, referring to Genesis 9-6, shedding of the blood is the taking of life. But the problem is, before that point in time, the zygote has all the genes. They're a unique person. And again, she was writing to address different methods of birth control. If there's any question, don't use it. John Stott weighs in. He said the zygote has a unique genotype which is distinct from both parents. And the child's sex, size, shape, color of skin, hair, eyes, temperament, and intelligence are already determined. Each human being begins as a single fertilized cell while an adult has about 30 million million cells. And between these two points, fusion and maturity, 45 generations of cell division are necessary. And 41 of them occur before birth. I think that we can agree with the First International Conference on Abortion that met way back in 1967. And they said, we can find no point in time between the union of the sperm and the egg and the birth of the infant, at which point we can say that this is not a human life. It's a human life. Now, the, the next section, I, I take some information from Dr. John Eidsmo in his lecture, lecture, A Christian View of Abortion. When does life begin? Number five, Conception. Conception. Conception is when the egg is fertilized by the sperm. And that's when it becomes a living being. Let's, let's move on to the biblical view. We've talked about the common views and a lot of misperceptions that have been out there. Let's talk about the biblical view. Five facts about the biblical view. Number one, the Bible makes no distinction between born and unborn children. Born and unborn children. In English language, we speak of a, a baby, a newborn, an infant, a child, a fetus, which is Latin for offspring. And we use them interchangeably. Sometimes they overlap. In the Greek, the language of the New Testament, we have much more precise language. Much more precise language. In Luke 1, 41 and 44, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. What word is used for baby? It's brephos. Brephos. So brephos is used for the baby. Brephos is also used in Luke 2.12 for a baby already born. In the Christmas narratives, you will find a baby, brephos, wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. Same word. Same word for baby in the womb and a baby born, brephos. In Luke 18, 15, people were also bringing 
babies to Jesus to have him touch them. What was, the, what was it used? Brephos was the word. Luke 18, 15, people, oh, and then 2 Timothy 3, 15. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scripture. What's the word? Brephos. Luke 1, 31, you will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. There's a different word. Brephos is used for preborn and unborn. When it talks about a son, it's a word huios. Huios. You are to be with child to give birth to a son. You will conceive a son and bring forth a son. It doesn't say you will conceive an embryo or fetus and bring forth a son. Huios, the son, is used for both. There's no difference. It refers to the same thing. In the Old Testament, Hebrew makes no distinction between unborn and born children. The same word is used for Jacob and Esau in the womb as they are born, and same as the sons born to Noah. So the Bible doesn't make any distinction between born and unborn children. Same words, same principles. Secondly, biblical authors identify themselves with the unborn children. One of my favorite passages of scripture, Psalm 139, Psalm 139 talks about this in verse 13. It says, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Three concepts from Psalm 139. Creation, it says, created my inmost being. Continuity, there's past, present, and future. And then there's communion or covenant. The author refers to himself both before birth and after birth but <clears throat> by the same personal pronouns, I and me. He's aware that he's the same person conceived as an embryo, a newborn, as an adult. Stott writes, the fetus is neither a growth in the mother's body or even a potential human being, but already a human life who, though not mature, has the potentiality of growing into the fullness of the individual humanity he already possesses. possesses. Isaiah 49.1, before I was born, the Lord called me. From birth, he made mention of my name. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, appointed you as a prophet to the nation. The author identifies himself with the unborn child. There's no difference. No difference. Number three, the Bible speaks of an unborn child dying. The unborn child dying. Job 10 and Jeremiah 20 talks about the fact that there was a death of a child that proves that the child is alive even though not born. Number four, the Bible gives legal protection to the unborn child. Interesting passage in, in Exodus 21. It basically, verse 22 to 25, it says, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. What is he saying? If there's further injury, in other words, if the baby dies, it's an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. The Bible gives legal protection to the unborn. 
Number five, the Bible ascribes sin nature to the unborn child. Psalm 55, 51.5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Doesn't mean the sex act was sinful. It means David inherited his sin through conception. Through conception. His sin nature. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. When do we receive our sinful nature? At birth? At the age of accountability? When we know right from wrong? When we commit our first sin? No. We receive our sinful nature at conception. It's part of sinful nature. It's who we are. Blobs of tissue don't have sin nature or souls. So the biblical view is that the fetus, the unborn child, is a human being. And modern science really, really confirms that. I'm not going to take time to go. There are some things that we could go through. Um, let's talk about the quality of life versus sanctity of life. This is a big issue. Big issue. In Canada now, they've legalized euthanasia for any reason. And death by, by euthanasia has jumped like 500%. It's unreal. It's unbelievable. Let's talk about the quality of life versus sanctity of life. The question is asked, is the taking of an unborn child's life ever justifiable? What about the mother's right to choose? Pro-abortionists will say no person should have to bear a child against her will. I, I agree. But the choice needs to be made sooner, before pregnancy and before sex. And both the man and the woman must decide. This is not strictly a woman's issue. This is also a man's issue. Men, this is your issue as much as women's issue. If two people do decide to have intimacy, they must choose to take care of the results of their choices. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to God. We don't make the rules. God does. Is it woman's choice? It's God's choice, not ours. And it's according to Romans 13... It's a responsibility of the government to protect life. It's not a matter of choice. How about abortion due to birth defects? Some people say the issue is not the sanctity of life, but the quality of life. The life of a severely handicapped person, they don't know if it's worth living. Who can preserve to presumed to decide this. Alison David, Davis describes herself as a happy spinabifida adult. And she spoke from a wheelchair and said this, quote, I can think of few concepts more terrifying than saying that certain people are better off dead and may therefore be killed for their own good. Remember point one, who decides questions of life and death? If we choose to abort the handicapped, we are fallible mortals, playing God. Maurice Baring tells a story about one doctor who asked another doctor. He said, I want to ask you about the termination of pregnancy. I want your opinion. In this case, the father had syphilis and the mother had tuberculosis. Of the four children born to them, 
The first was blind. The second was born dead. The third one was born deaf and dumb. The fourth also had tuberculosis. What would you have done? The doctor answered without missing a lick. He said, I would have ended the pregnancy. He said, then you would have murdered Ludwig van Beethoven. Who are we to say that a handicapped person cannot live a meaningful life? French biologist Jean Rostan says, I have the weakness to believe that it is an honor for our society to desire the expensive luxury of a sustaining life for its useless and incompetent and curably ill members. I would almost measure a society's degree of civilization by the amount of effort and vigilance it imposes on itself out of pure respect for life. The Bible speaks of the sanctity of life, not the quality of life, which is a focus of pleasure-seeking hedonistic materialism in the culture. We know there are places, one, for example, Iceland. Iceland, back in 2017, eliminated the life of Down syndrome children. It is in this supposed area that the desire to promote health and well-being morphs into the insidious view that people with Down syndrome are better off dead and that we will be a more advanced society for having relieved them of the burden of a limited life. Too many children today believe it is preferable and indeed more humane to murder children rather than allow them to suffer. But what life doesn't have suffering? That's from an article by Alexandra de Sanctus back in August 2017. And Iceland has eliminated. What about rape or incest? Pregnancy comes that. It's a serious problem. The pregnancy as a result of this is extremely rare, but should not be used as a pretext or justification for abortion on demand. The basic issue is, does the child have a basic fundamental right to live? Does the child have a fundamental right to live? In Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. John Eidsmo says, It is wrong to punish the child with the death penalty for a sin his father committed. Don't be fooled by changes in vocabulary. We have to have the courage to use accurate language. We use euphemisms to make it easier to conceal the truth. John Stott says, the occupant of the mother's womb is not the product of conception or gametic material, but an unborn child. Even pregnancy tells us no more than that the woman has been impregnated. Whereas the, old, the truth in the old-fashioned language is that she is with child. She is with child. God alone should decide questions of life and death. The unborn child is a human being created in the image of God at conception, in spite of the scientific evidence that the baby 
has all of the genetic makeup from conception. Millions of women every year have abortions. Two are involved in every pregnancy and two are involved in every abortion. And some, that somebody you know or somebody here may have had an abortion. That's the reason Jesus came. The beauty of the God's top ten. This is why we sometimes fail to recognize or talk about these issues. We have to always put it in context of God's grace and God's forgiveness. God's top ten is to show us where we fall short. Romans 7.7 7 says, I would not have known what sin was except the law. We cannot earn God's favor by keeping the law. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die for all sins. Even abortion. No matter what it is. Let's look at God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. Roman numeral 4. Romans 8, 1 to 2 says, Therefore... There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We tend to categorize sins as not so bad, bad, worse, and worst. God doesn't do that. We're either perfect or not. Okay? Perfect or not. And Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've given this illustration before. Because it'd be like we all come to a river. And we all try to jump over the river. And the goal is to get across the river. And as we run and jump, some make it 50%, okay? Didn't make it very far. Some make it 75%. Some make it 99%, but they fall in. Everybody falls short. That's the picture of our sin. No matter how far we fall short, we all fall short. Perfection doesn't exist except in Jesus Christ. We all fall short. Jesus came to save us, to take us across, lift us from the river in spiritual death. He forgives us, he washes us clean, and brings us safely. And if you're here today, no matter what you've done in your past, may not have anything to do with this issue, God's top ten is about relationship. Relationship. He wants to have a relationship with you. We're called to confess, which means agree with God that we did wrong. Repent, which means turning away from the sin to God and accept that Jesus paid for that and ask Jesus to come into your life and to take charge of your life. And if you know anyone who is struggling with the guilt of any sin, including abortion, love them, accept them, tell them God loves them unconditionally, just the way they are. Because God loves us all unconditionally. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't mince words. Thank you that we have revelation that applies to everything, including these contemporary issues. 
And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would first of all affirm, affirm those that are, are struggling with any kind of sin, that you are forgiveness, God. And God, that you would speak to our hearts. God, you give us courage to be able to look at the truth and speak the truth in love, knowing that God, you, you have placed us in this world for such a time as this. And I pray, God, that you would use us to love those around us. We would love you first, we'd love others, and we would reach out to those that desperately need Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name.